Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I can change if I need to. I can pray like I mean it. And I can say. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Monica Coleman. Monica is a renowned process and womanist theologian. She is also an author and currently professor of Africana Studies at the University of Delaware. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Ryan David Mangini. Ryan David Mangini is a solo indie rock project. You can get connected with Monica and Ryan and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. <laughs> Today I have Monica Coleman with me, and Monica Coleman is not only just a un- wonderful person, but she's also probably a top three favorite theologian of mine. So this is just an honor to be able to chat with you a little bit more. Uh, but before we dive into all the process and womanist uh, goodness uh, that you're up to, I want to know who is Monica Coleman to Monica Coleman? Oh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that question. <laughs> uh, who am I to me? Uh, you know, at this point, because I'm a young child, I feel like I am mommy all the time, even mm. when she isn't here. Um, but I think I just think of myself as a person of faith mm-hmm. uh, who has a lot of questions and really likes to have answers and likes to have choices and who, because of COVID, misses ritual and misses mm. community. Mm. Mm. I love that. You know, one of the things I was telling you this before we started recording that I've interviewed lots of process people and they always have the most processy response to that question. And yours is no different. So, well, you know, we feel very strongly about relationality. That's right. That's right. I love that. Uh, So you've had some pretty significant changes over the last couple of years. You moved all the way across the country. You started a new job. uh, And I think you even at one point I saw maybe on Instagram that you even got married at one point. Um, So can you talk about all the changes that have happened in your life over the last couple of years? Yeah, I thought I'd put, you know, the big life changes all within a year and a half. Um, (laughs) I didn't quite choose them that way. But yes, I did get married for the second time. And about two months before I moved cross country to from 
working at Claremont School of Theology to being professor at University of Delaware, uh, changing from you know freestanding theological education to a state university, mm-hmm. um, from teaching religion to teaching in Africana studies. So those were some big changes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I would say in terms of my personal, also my I was my mother's primary caregiver as she lived with advanced Alzheimer's. And so mm-hmm. since the beginning of 2020, she has also passed away. So that's mm-hmm. also been a big change. So I do not recommend, not that anyone orchestrates these things, but putting these kind of big changes into one's life in a short period of time. But luckily, I do operate out of a philosophy and a theology that talks about adaptation and change a lot. Mm. So I'm not mad about it. I believe I have the skills to navigate it, even Mm. when it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's not always difficult. It's also pretty exciting and fun. Mm -hmm. One of the beauties of process is just how practical it can be in a life of, uh, you know, unexpected uh, things always happening. Um, and just the ability to adapt and change and evolve is just uh, deeply embedded within process. It is. So one of the things that I, I find really interest, interesting with kind of all these significant changes, especially with your job change, is kind of a shift in the, a lot of the academic work that you've been doing. So obviously when you're at Claremont, you were doing a lot of theological work and everything. Um, and then now in your current role doing a lot of like um what you said it was um africana uh studies uh so can you talk a little bit about sort of that academic shift that's happened over the last year or so now with being at university of delaware well you know for me it's not that big a shift in terms Mm. of my research and what i'm interested in my undergraduate major was african-american studies and so for many ways you know africana studies black studies is a disciplinary home for me Mm. So um, that doesn't that hasn't changed in that sense. So in many ways, teaching in a Black Studies department is like a com- a homecoming for mm. me. And my research, um, so much of it involved philosophical theology, process theology, Black and liberation theologies, um, Black religiosity. And so I was teaching Black religion at Claremont, and you know I tried to get some theology in. <laughs> um, I can't call it theology at a university; that doesn't really do religion. Mm-hmm. But I just call it religion, and but I know I'm teaching theology. Um, and so I teach theology still. So in a lot of ways, I think my job has shifted because I do more administrative work where I am now, and the resources to do that are different. But my research is still kind of in the same trajectory in terms of the ways in which I look and draw from. Black culture and Black women's experiences to make, as any good process person, uh, points that I think might be true across many contexts. Mm, mm. That's really interesting. Yeah, for some reason, in my like own perception of it, like things had like significantly changed. But you're right. Like a, a lot of the work that you were doing before is just so um, congruent with uh, with a lot of the work that you're doing now in Africana studies. One of the things I also I mean, find. I oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. The change I think you perceive, which is the case, is I knew when I was leaving theological education, though, that I would not be teaching um, people preparing for careers in ministry and community justice work, right? Mm. And I also knew I would not be teaching like the depths of the field that I love in the same way. And so I did become clear that because that's something I love to do and feel very called and passionate to do, that I was going to have to do that in other ways, probably outside of my institution. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. You are a renowned womanist scholar, and one of the things that you're notable for in your work in uh, womanism is sort of your integrating of womanism with process theology. And so I'm curious, what are ways that you see womanism and process theology being really compatible and even really good conversation partners? 
Uh, well, you know, of course, I've written about this a bit because they both are very familiar to me and um, the areas of study that I feel passionate about and I feel very familiar and comfortable with. And so for me, the connections were very easy to make because there's so much diversity within what womanist religious scholarship can and can do, right? It simply means that we begin with the religious and spiritual experiences of women of African descent. And that's a really broad rubric. Right. Mm -hmm. So we could begin with Protestant Christianity or Catholic Christianity or African traditional religions or Islam. And there are scholars who do all of those things. We could do those for women who are of Caribbean descent, women who are descendants of the U.S. slavery system, women who have direct connections to Ghanaian society or Congo society. And you see all of that work as well. So for me, it was not that hard really to say, I'm just going to start in one little corner of, of Black women's religious experiences. And with process in mind, that meant that I was always thinking about change. Mm. And I also like to work a lot with traditional West African religions as well. And so I really saw a lot of that in science fiction, which I've also written about because so much of science fiction um, black women science fiction, which we now call Afrofuturism. <laughs> when I first began writing about it, people didn't use that term so much. You know, has these great bold women leaders, right? When you look mm -hmm. at black women science fiction and they're, you know, imaginary <laughs> in the sense of they have strong imagination and they are imagining what could be, what should be, what we hope would not be. And managing that usually with some kind of invocation of religion. And that I find fascinating and have always seen some connections there. One of the things that I find really fascinating about process is how um, flexible and accessible it is, regardless of one's religious tradition and even maybe philosophical tradition. Um, I mean, that's, I think, the beauty of process versus maybe a lot of other theologies, like, you know, maybe like Reformed theology, which is obviously a very um, exclusively Christian theology. But the beauty of process is how it's able to be expanded into many different religious traditions, whether it's Buddhism, um, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, and so on and so forth. Um, and so it seems like th that accessibility of process is what is one of the reasons why it's able to just easily, uh, again, become a really good conversation partner with womanism. Is that something? Is that like fair? Do you, do you see that within process as well? Um, I I see it. I'm not sure if that's quite where I see the connection with womanism, mm. but I do see as you're saying that you know, in fair in a way, it's not really a fair comparison, right, to do reformed theology in process because reformed theology understands itself to be doing Christian systematic theology, right, right. and process are like, well, we're philosophical theologians, which really means we're thinking about how the whole world works, including God, and. However you think of God, we think this is kind of how the world works. So in some ways, we're, we're interested in two different enterprises, right? Mm -hmm. So um, even though I clearly would choose process over reformed, <laughs> it's not a fair comparison in the sense that we, we're, we have two different tasks. Right? One is really trying to explain how Christianity can be understood 
with certain principles and values at work. And we're like, well, we, this is how we think the world works. And if you're Christian, then this is how it could work. And if you're this faith, this is how it could work. And if you're Buddhist, this is how it could work. So on one level, I think it's not a fair comparison, but I do like that about process that it has the capacity and I think it does a good job of dealing with religious plurality. Mm-hmm. I think what you would think that would make it easy to work with all different types of traditions and cultures. Um, but most of womanist work is not done <laughs> from the same kind of theological claims that process makes. Mm. So in that sense, I've have felt, and I think I am, kind of an outlier in that sense, in terms of making different claims about who God is and what God does, who Jesus Mm. is and how Jesus works, because mine are grounded so firmly in some of the tenets of process, such Mm. as universal incarnation. What what are some of those ways that it maybe differs between like maybe more traditional womanist scholarship and Mm -hmm. some of those theological claims that you're making from a process perspective? What are maybe some of those differences? Um, one of the ones I just mentioned is right, who we, I think Jesus is and what Jesus does, right? So in process thought, incarnation is universal, right? God is in everyone. It's a very pan-entheist religion, mm-hmm. right? And not just like, oh, God breathed into humanity, but God constitutes, co-constitutes every fiber of everything, right? So it means you are necessarily ecological because God is in the trees and the grass, which does dovetail well with a lot of womanist work because there's a lot of ecological work within womanism uh, and a lot of womanism within ecological and environmental justice work as well. But also it doesn't go well with the idea that Jesus is the only one who God is in, right? Or that God is uniquely in Jesus some way. I think from a process perspective, you can't get there. Mm. That you, there's no, there, there are people who do it, um, but I disagree. I think that, you know, process really says, well, if God isn't everyone, then God isn't everyone. And so you don't have a specially God person. And that goes against what a lot of Christianity says. And therefore, what a lot of Christian womanists would say about the relevance of Jesus, which doesn't mean I don't like Jesus. I think Jesus is cool. Mm. But it means that we're going to say different things about the significance of Jesus and about how salvation works if we have these different ideas about how about how people are constituted between humanity and God. Mm. Mm-hmm. I find your journey into process theology to be really interesting. I mean, process, especially at least in America, has often been dominated by white men, um, mm-hmm. you know, with John Cobb and David mm-hmm. Ray Griffin and others who are great, but again, a pretty a tradition uh, in America that's been dominated by mainly white men. So I find your journey into it quite interesting. So can you talk a little bit about the origins of how you even heard about process theology and how you uh, ventured into it? Sure. I mean, I agree. It is dominated by white men, but I didn't know that. (laughs) So that helped a lot in the sense that like many people who go to divinity school and you're taking your survey course in theology, it was introduced to me. And the first time I read, um, you know, the introductory text and introductory text and process theology, I didn't really get it. I still don't for what it's worth. It's just not my favorite book. Um, and then the second time I read it, I kind of got it. And I was like, oh, no, why am I going to pray to a God that can't fix my problems? Mm. Right. And so I really wasn't liking it. And then I read it again. And I think a lot of it had to do with my own experience as an individual and as a religious leader and trying to really wrestle with suffering and wrestle with deep suffering of that I experienced and of the people I was working with and cared about and not having any sufficient theological resources from the traditions I had grown in and had been taught about 
suffering and how suffering works and why we suffer and who we get to blame for it. And process really gave me that. So I was like, wow, I've really got to figure this out because I'm working with people who are living in deep poverty. I was a community organizer working with people who lived in um, trailer parks. I was working as domestic violence uh, program. I was working in sexual violence programs, people who experienced intimate violence and deep levels of injustice. And I had like crap answers for this. And so I was like, I need some better answers. And so I really went trying to learn more about process theology. And it wasn't really until I was at the doctoral level, I was like, why is everybody here white? Like I didn't realize that there weren't a ton of women in the programs or even scholars. There are some, but there weren't a ton. There are more now, but still not a lot. Mm -hmm. And I was like, where are the black people? Like I just was interested in the ideas. And then I looked around, I was like, whoa, I guess there are other people here talking about African religions and process theology. And so in one level, the process community is very open and inclusive and like, hey, this is great. We want to hear about it. Come share, come tell. What do you see that we don't see? Um, how else can we expand our ideas? Um, but I think in other ways, many Black religious scholars at the time were like, what does process care about liberation? What does process care about justice and injustice? And it was, of course, that people write about what they're interested in, <laughs> and that's not what people were interested in. So the existing people in the field weren't writing about that. But I said, but I believe the system can bear it. And so mm -hmm. I, that's how I do process. I do process as a liberation theologian, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. questions of justice and community are integral. And I think in the ways that process thought is evolving in the world, there's more and more of that than there was 20 some years ago, mm -hmm. when, <laughs> before 20 years ago, when I began this journey. And we see how much uh, more process thinkers care about and write about what it means to quest for the common good. Mm. I want to ask a little bit about that liberation piece in just a bit. But before that, at what point in that journey with process theology did you feel like, okay, this is something I'm really interested in and want to learn more about too. I have a voice to contribute to this world in the in process theology. So can you talk a little bit about what that little mm -hmm. moment where you realize, hey, I have something meaningful to contribute to this? You know, I think like many other people, you just meet that right mentor, that right person mm -hmm. who says something, who says, we need your voice. So I think it was less that I like, I have something to say, but someone says, you have something to mm -hmm. say. And I had finished divinity school and was just hanging out in Nashville at the Daigle place, actually. There was only one at the time. <laughs> and ran into someone who was a student and said, hey, you know, Marjorie Suhaki is teaching this class. Do you want to come? And I'm like, I can't just walk into your class. Like, sure you can. So I'm like, you don't have a job. It's like, yeah, whatever. So I was like, okay. So I decided to, you know, take an hour or two off of work. I worked late all the time. So I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Um, and went to this class and heard Marjorie Suhaki give this lecture. And I asked to meet with her a little later. She was just a visiting lecturer that semester at Vanderbilt. And I said, hey, you know, has anyone ever thought about how similar this process theology you're talking about is to indigenous traditions and West African religions? And she says, no, you should write about that. And I was like, not really. And she said, no, you should write about that. I was like, no, really? She said, yeah, come to Claremont and write about that. I was like, you think? And so it really was her saying, you know, no, no one's thought about that. And that's something that you should do.
So let's get to that liberation piece that you clearly saw a connection there that maybe other uh, black liberation theologians and even maybe even some womenist theologians weren't making that connection between process. So what is it about process that you feel like is really compatible with a lot of liberation theology? Well, I think I start off as a liberationist, right? So I encountered James Cone and Dolores Williams before BART until like in Boltman, right? So my mm. entry into theology was through black and womanist theology. So for me, that's the default. <laughs> that's the first place I start is thinking about um, women's experiences, black people's experiences, black women's experiences, and the relationship to freedom and justice and equality. So I would say for me, that's a default point. And I even get that from my experiences in Black, ch black churches, right, that were social justice oriented, or at least very community justice oriented. So I think I would have brought that to whatever theological enterprise I was interested in. And so for process, you know, we do believe that God is luring or calling us towards some kind of ideal. And when I read more about Whitehead, I was like, what's all this truth and beauty stuff about justice? And so I was like, well, you know, process is an open speculative metaphysic, which means that you can, the more you learn about the world, you don't try and shove your world into the theory, you change the theory to be able to account for what you experience in the world. And my experience was, you know, I guess like this quote from that one UU minister, it's often attributed to uh, Martin Luther King, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice, um, was that, hey, this is an important ideal. And this is what I see when I'm looking at scriptural texts. And this is something that seems to be important to the God that I know and experience. And process people just kind of miss that. So I should just talk about it some. And I think that Black and womanist theologians were very clear about that, um, but made assumptions about how God worked that were different than my assumptions about how God worked. And I don't think that there was anything anti-process or there was much anti-process per se, except that Black and womanist theologians at that time, remember 20 years ago, um, just didn't know as much about process as I did because you had to kind of dig deep and you could only do this at a couple schools, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, I don't think there was, uh, this is the only way to do it, but hmm, let's see what you can do with that, right? <laughs> like, okay. Um, I mean, even Dr. Cohn would say, you know, Monica, you may have convinced me, <laughs> you know, and he's partying, right? Mm -hmm. um, like, maybe we can do something with this process. And I took that as a very high compliment. That's awesome. Who, who would have known? James Cohn, the, uh, the closeted process theologian. Well, not a process theologian, but saying, I think it's okay. <laughs> there, there, there's at least <laughs> that. Yeah, he's, he was willing to flirt with it a little bit. <laughs> right, right. You <laughs> convinced awesome. me there's some value to this. <laughs> So one of the things that you have been very vulnerable and upfront about is having bipolar disorder. Um, you wrote a book a number of years ago now about having bipolar disorder and how, you know, your faith kind of uh, enmeshes with that. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about what maybe you've learned theologically from having bipolar disorder? Ah, great question. Um, again, I think it, it's a bit more to that issue of suffering, right? That mm. another reason why the question of suffering mattered to me because I did have my own um, experiences of suffering, living with a depressive condition. I think what I have learned the most, and this actually resonates a lot with process, um, is that there is a loss that comes with depression, right? There, and it's a kind of continual losing in a way. And that's something that process affirms, right? That we call perpetual perishing. Mm -hmm. That in the process of change, there is always loss. Sometimes that's fine. Sometimes it's great. A lot of times it sucks and kicks mm -hmm. rocks. 
but that there is loss, but that loss is part of the creative process. So I think living with a depressive condition, I would focus on the loss a lot. And it really helped me to know that it's part of the creative process, <laughs> that on the other side of loss is an opportunity for creative transformation again. Mm -hmm. And if there's more loss, there's still another opportunity for creative transformation. And that really taught me a lot about what salvation is, how <laughs> we think about creative transformation. And I would say in a spiritual sense, which I think is also theological, but maybe more on the spiritual level, that loss of faith isn't a bad thing, right? That we're always trying to keep the faith. But loss of faith is actually just part of the spiritual journey mm. and that you're going to lose your faith because life happens in a way that just makes you go, whoops, that's not working for me anymore. Mm. <laughs> and that you find faith again. I think we think of like you lose it and it's over and that's it. And now you're just kind of spiritually or theologically or religiously ass out. Can I say that? Of course. Okay, cool. Um, when actually you lose it, you find it again. You lose it, there are new opportunities again. And that helps me a lot living with a depressive condition because when you're in it, you don't feel like there's a new day. But knowing that factually there is mm. makes a huge difference for me in the living. Mm. Mm. I love that so much. I, I, it's, it's really interesting that for a lot of people, including yourself, their entrance into, or at least maybe their initial intrigue to process, is that um, the way in which process thinks about evil and suffering. Mm -hmm. um, that isn't my own story. I got into process for other reasons, but I just love that for so many people, that's kind of their entry point into what has piqued their interest in the process. I find that's just fascinating. What's your entry point? Yeah, I think mine was just more about the general relationality. I just found that so compelling about how the the ways in which even just the electrons that make up the entirety of the universe is each one of those have some sort of form of relationship with one another. And the ways in which even those interact uh, affect, you know, the whole. I just find that so interesting, sort of the emergent theory in it and all of that stuff. I just find oh, so fascinating. So and it, like, it just it just so happened that the evil and suffering piece was like, yeah, I can get down with that. But it just wasn't my entry point into it, which I find interesting. Yeah, like the, the deep relationality, kind of the science geek part. Yeah, I just find that amazing. So one of the other things that, you know, I, I think process theology really stresses and I think a lot of womanism, at least from the womanism I've read, also stresses is this uh, th this concept of non-duality or non-dualism. Uh, so especially sort of in the wake of all the protests that were happening this summer, uh, I live in Minneapolis, so I was very personally uh, invested in uh, the protests and uh, following the murder of George Floyd. Um, but in a lot of ways, there's kind of this trap uh, that lots of different kind of people fall into this like form of dualism in the wake of like protests and everything of this is this is right and this is wrong and this is them and this is, you know, the us and them kind of stuff. So can you talk a little bit about how liberation and the work of liberation can be done in non-dualistic ways? Um, I agree. I mean, I think it's just a human tendency to do us and them, right? <laughs> to, to draw boundaries. Um, and anthropologists have written quite poignantly about this for decades. But um, I think that womanism has always said, you know, really drawing from that part of the Alice Walker definition, like concerned about everybody, right? Mm -hmm. Concerned about the freedom and well-being and wholeness of the entire community. And said, you know, so clearly we all have to get down with that project <laughs> in some <laughs> ways to make that happen. 
and you know process not just saying it's philosophically complicated but like hey it's complicated this whole process of becoming and change is complicated it can go a lot of different ways like it could have a happy ending we could not have a happy ending right <laughs> like the fact that we can't promise a happy ending is actually what bothers people <laughs> who right, really right. want their happy ending <laughs> promised by god and god's like look i'm working with what you give me what you got right <laughs> and what you're gonna do now um so there's very much this sense that there has to be cooperation. There has to be this co-creation. And like, it can't just be this solo project. Like there's no superhero to come and rescue anybody mm -hmm. in, in process or in, I think in womanist theologies. It's like, this, what are we gonna do as a community? How are we going to come together? And how are we going to affect change? Um, and how do we make partnerships, right? And how do we try to find the best of our past and bring that into the future? And how do we get rid of the worst of our past? And that's something that we're all trying to do individually and collectively all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not all of us, let me take that back. But I think many of us are trying to do. I'd like to pivot for a moment to your interest in Octavia Butler. I recently saw that you were even like on a conference for it, and we're talking a little bit more about Octavia Butler's work. Uh, and Octavia Butler, for those who don't know, is a black uh, woman uh, science fiction author uh, who, like you mentioned before, um, sort of did a lot of work. I don't know if she ever used this term herself, but Afrofuturism. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about what really intrigues you about Octavia Butler? Um, I know, again, you briefly mentioned it earlier, but let's dive a little bit more into that. So what intrigues you about, about her? Well, you know, I was reading Octavia Butler and Black Women Science Fiction for fun during my doctoral program. Mm. Because you can't just read philosophy all the time, right? <laughs> so you need something to read for fun. And of course, if you're a little geeky, you'll start seeing connections everywhere. And you're like, if I'm reading it, it's got to go on a paper somewhere. <laughs> um, but I really began to see these connections between the work of Octavia Butler. I was reading, again, 20-ish years ago, um, Tanana Reed Du, Nalo Hopkinson, um, these Black women science, fictures, science fiction writers, and the way they were talking about religion, the way they were invoking religious imagery, uh, Black women's leadership, and imagining new futures. And I was like, this is cool. Mm -hmm. And it felt so womanist and it felt so processed to me. Mm -hmm. And that's what I started writing about. And it also felt very, very African to me. And I found all of those that kind of intersection fascinating. And I didn't see anyone else talking about it or writing about it a lot. So I started writing about it. And more recently, you know, I had since become friends with Tanana Reedu, who's also a great Afrofuturist writer who knew Octavia Butler, who is like the godmother of Black women mm -hmm. Afrofuturists. Right. Um, it was like all these dudes in her for like many, many years. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, she won a MacArthur Award. She's very well esteemed. You know, some of her books are taught in like junior high school curriculums. Mm -hmm. And I wrote about her particular series that's more explicitly religious, Parable of the Sower series, mm -hmm. in my book, Making a Way Out of No Way. So here we are in this pandemic, and, you know, like, it's just going to, like, you know, the world is going to hell, really. I mean, like, it's just, <laughs> like, what's going to happen? Where are we going? Politics are blowing up. And, you know, I text them out of reason, be like, yo, you know, we should talk about, you want to talk about, do a webinar on Octavia Butler and, 
you know, what we can learn from this and because it's like the world is looking so much like the world she described in a 1990 book. And she's like, yeah, let's do it. And so we started hosting these webinars, which we're still doing <laughs> every month, just talking about this and bringing in different speakers who are experts in Afrofuturism or faith or who know, um, like we had, we had Octavia Butler's agent, just a variety of people to talk about. And we thought we'd have a couple hundred people interested and it just blew up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're like, oh, wow, we can't handle this in a webinar. We need some tech help, <laughs> right? <laughs> we thought it'd just be a little Zoom call. And um, <laughs> you know, we started housing them on YouTube and we called it Octavia Tried to Tell Us, a parable mm-hmm. for a pandemic. And then it ended up, we kind of renamed it unofficially, a parable for a pandemic and a politic. Um, <laughs> like she literally talked about a real, um, someone running for president of the United States with the slogan, make America great again. Right. Wow. And she wrote this in the eighties. Right. And so it's this reminder in some ways of how predictable everything was because she wasn't a magician. She wasn't a soothsayer. She was just reading the signs of times and saying, you know, if we don't, you know, if we don't kind of make course correct. This is where we're going to be. But she also has these beautiful ways of talking about how we form community and how we survive and um, how we can develop our own faith and our own theology in the midst of what seems to be very perilous times. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a great model, I think, not only of process theology and action and constructive theology methodology, but it also mm-hmm. is hope and encouragement for this community that we've gathered together around these conversations about we can do this. We can survive. We can, you know, make bread out of acorns or whatever the case might be. Um, and while also seeing and trying to avoid the things that we want. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people in ritual theory are really interested in her work for those very reasons, because of the sort of rituals that happen within her book uh, mm-hmm. and just how paramount they are in being able to form community and to survive in the midst of you know, catastrophe and apocalypse. Right. You, you mentioned a little bit about Parable of the Sower, which is one of her more notable uh, pieces of work. Uh, and she talks about in Parable of Sower as this concept of God as change. Right. How do you see her ideas of God as change being similar and maybe a little different to process theology? Oh, I see them as being so similar. I mean, I have tried to find out if she had any exposure to process. <laughs> and I have looked and I've been in the archives and there's no evidence because it's just in the air, of course. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, and she has a, such a, and I, what I like about it is, you know, process is a philosophical theology. We use complex terms to say things and she uses poetry to say things, mm-hmm. right? And we need that literary, that metaphorical, that narrative language because, you know, I like metaphysics, but that's not moving. Story is moving, that's right? right? That's Poetry right. is moving. That's what narrative is what sticks with us. And so that she's like, God has changed. We shape God. God shapes us, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like she has just this great poetic way of describing what I see as many of the key tenets of process theology. Um, she does not assume that God is good and much of process theology does, although mm-hmm. one doesn't need to. Mm-hmm. And so I really like that she really pushes us to, in that assumption, that God is good, right? It's like, well, God is God. And <laughs> this mm-hmm. is, you know, it's God is just God. And there are ways, um, many ways you can work in process theology where you're not assuming that God is good in the moral sense. Right. Just that God's like, well, I'm, I'm just trying to get y'all 
to intensity, right? I'm trying to get y'all to harmony. I'm trying to get you to complexity. And that may or may not align with a kind of ethical or moral sense of good. And so I do like that way in which she kind of pushes the ways in which many of us think about process theology while holding firm to the idea like, hey, this is, there's just change and you're going to have to reckon with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The tagline of my podcast is exploring theologies that inspire and liberate. Uh, and it may be very obvious to our conversation um, as to why your work is inspiring and liberating. But I'm just curious from your own uh, from your own perspective, how do you see your work being inspiring and th uh, liberating theological work? Oh, wow. I mean, I guess it's a hope, right? You hope your work is inspiring and, and liberating. And I guess I have feedback from people who've read it or who've encountered my work and say, I, I am inspired, right? Or I feel more free. But I guess I would say, you know, I try to stand within the traditions that are committed to liberation and justice mm -hmm. and freedom. And I do believe, as women as theologians do, that that is the telos of all of our theological and ethical constructions. So in that sense, I do hope that it's liberating because I'm coming in and through and standing in that tradition. Okay. Um, inspiring. Wow. You know, I think that because it's just I've been out here long enough and I have been really humbled and amazed by the different communities that use the work I've done. Let's me see. Oh, wow. Somebody finds something I've done inspiring. And I think I'm just trying to be like the people who inspire me, right? You know, I've read books and come away changed. I mean, I think this is why writers write because we read things that have moved us and have changed how we see the world or how we understand ourselves or what we're doing. And you just hope that you can kind of contribute to one little corner of that. Mm -hmm. And so I think I tried to tell stories maybe that haven't been told or to share them from a perspective that haven't been shared before. And maybe that catches somebody who felt left out in another narrative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Last question, Monica. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Oh, well, easy. You can find me at MonicaAColeman.com. And if you go there, you can sign up for my newsletter. There's a little pop-up screen. You can grab my free devotional, which, of course, mm -hmm. is very process-oriented. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... Um, you can always find me on all social media at Rev Dr. Monica, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. I don't tweet a lot, but I'm on there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Monica. Again, like I mentioned at the beginning, you are for sure a top three favorite theologian of mine, Catherine Keller being one of the others and Marcella Alhas-Reed being another. And you three together have been probably in almost every single one of my papers in seminary. Uh, your work has just uh, inspired and even potentially liberated me in many ways. Uh, and I just, uh, again, uh, am so thankful and grateful for all the work that you've done in the world. And so it's just an absolute pleasure. It's almost just one of those surreal moments to be able to chat with you for a little bit. So thank you so much again. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm honored to be in such esteemed company with my colleagues. <laughs> If you'd like to connect with Monica and Ryan and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>